Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. It would not be a stretch to say that teachers are not just education, but also community and social first responders. I'm Chris William, and welcome again to the most widely watched source of Carolina business policy and public affairs seen across the Carolinas for more than 30 years now. On this program, we have from North and South Carolina, the principals as well as the South Carolina, North Carolina Teachers of the Year. We will find out how they feel about being on the front lines and what are some of those things that don't make it to the news. We start in a moment. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Sarah Schumacher-Gams, South Carolina Teacher of the Year. Maureen Stover, North Carolina Teacher of the Year. Jessica Patterson, South Carolina Principal of the Year. And Keisha Clemens, North Carolina Principal of the Year. And welcome again to our program. Uh, this is an exceptionally exciting program for me personally, not because we play favorites, but some of the conversation before we actually started taping uh, was upbeat and optimistic and very forward looking. I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, and that's, that's not just hyperbole. I am honored and thrilled to welcome the North and South Carolina principals as well as teachers of the year to this dialogue. And I would like to say ladies uh, collectively, uh, a genuine congratulations and our gratitude for the job you're doing and being on the front line, so to speak, both figuratively and literally. So uh, again, to all of you, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I get the sense that you all are very upbeat and optimistic about your jobs. Uh, Principal Clemens, I'm not gonna pick on you, but we, we have to start somewhere. So let me, <laughs> let me start with you. Uh, Keisha, how do you, how do we measure this year of lost educational attainment and can and should we even try to make that up? Well, we are in the business of teaching and learning and we don't, uh, we typically have used informal and formal ways to kind of measure student learning and student growth. And, and although we haven't had the formal ways, you know, teachers do what they do in the classroom and they use best practices to really know what students know and are able to do and where there are gaps in learning. And um, due to the pandemic, you know, we are seeing each and every day the gaps in learning of students. 
Um, and we right now have students that are face-to-face, -face, but also students that are remote. So teachers um, are constantly looking and observing and using different tools in the classroom to really as assess the learning needs of students and where those gaps are. And because we're in the business of teaching and learning, that it is important. We have to think differently about how we're gonna approach teaching and learning so that we can bridge those gaps and make sure that students are successful. And anybody, we don't- Go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead, no, no, please. no go ahead. <laughs> no, I, does anyone have a different take on that? Is there another point of view well, on that? I, um, I think somewhere along the line, testing became a judgment. And that, and we talk about the loss of instruction and the loss of education. You don't lose education. You own that. That's yours. When you learn something and you apply it, that, that you, you own that. Students from kindergarten to pre-K to, to high school do that. So when we talk about a loss of instruction and a gap, um, we're using standardized tests to make judgment calls that seem final and they're not. Learning is a fluid process. Um, it's a day-to-day -day and teachers do know how to assess students where they are and get them where they need to be. But as long as we continue to allow standardized testing to make judgments on our schools and on our teachers and on our students, and we allow it to be called a loss or a gap, we are missing the point. Testing, assessing is meant to be, okay, where are you? Okay, now why are you there? Where are your misconceptions? Okay, now what can I do as the teacher to address these misconceptions and how can I move forward? So I am all for assessments, all different types of assessments, but to allow standardized testing and these companies make a fortune um, and they're making a fortune off of our schools and off of our students at the expense of our teachers and our students. And then we're making as a society judgment calls on everyone as to how well we're doing. And we've been out of school for six months. We're multiple different schedules. We're reimagining education um, and instruction and assessment because we're having to rethink how to do that because how do you do that online? Um, it's all different. And so we, I just don't think we can continue to allow standardized testing and these mm -hmm. arbitrary cutoff scores to determine success anymore. Okay, so Maureen, Jessica, I, are we overthinking or underthinking educational attainment in 2020 and 2021? So I don't think we're, we are. Um, I think that, you know, our students learning is really important. And our goal as pre-K-12 educators is to get our kids to the point where they are college and career ready as they exit our programs. And that, that's a very fluid process, as Sarah said. And it starts off with our kids in pre-K and we work with them all the way through the 12th grade and each teacher, each school, each administrator, each team of support staff, everyone is involved in that common goal of getting those kids to the point where they are gonna be college and career ready exiting our pre-K-12 systems. And that's where I see those gaps coming in, is that you know we're gonna have students that maybe miss some foundational pieces in their pre-K, kindergarten, first, second, or third grade classes. We're gonna have kids that maybe miss something in math one that's gonna be critical for them to understand to be successful in math two or math three. So I do think there is definitely going to be the need to find some of the places where our students maybe miss some of those skills so we have an opportunity to go back and work with them, but not because we want them to do good on a standardized test, because we want them to be successful as they exit our pre-K-12 mm -hmm. system. Um, and I think when we keep that in mind, when we keep the ultimate goal in mind, that we're preparing our kids for success then teachers are gonna be able to find those gaps and develop instruction that's personalized to each student to meet them exactly where they are so that those kids can be successful. Principal Patterson, we haven't heard from you yet. <laughs> well, um, so I am fortunate to have 
the earliest learners. So we have three-year-olds in, in our building um, through second graders. So we are, you know, building that foundation. And it has been very interesting to see um, how resilient our children are. And I think that we forget that as adults. So 2020 has been super tough on us as adults, but these kids are resilient. And so, uh, you know, part of it is us protecting them from the ideas of 2020. Um, they get these ideas from the adults that surround them. And so if we set up environments that are positive, that are focused on the best for the children, the social, emotional, and addressing their needs, um, learning is very personal. I completely agree with Sarah in that um, we work to be very personalized and have personalized learning approaches. So I told my teachers that this year might be the year for us to finally get rid of those grade bands. Quit thinking about the fact that you're teaching first grade. You're teaching the child. And um, our children aren't behind. Our children just are where they are. And we have a place that we're trying to take them. And that is to success. And success for every child looks different. And um, so I think that our job is to see where are they and where, where have we you know, missed some teaching and some opportunities and let's go there and let's fill in um, where they need it to be successful for them. And so I would say that we're doing that well um, and we're fortunate because we have them in person, all of them, and, um, and we're, we're having success with having them in person. I think that's important too. What, what do you all think it's lost in the public dialogue and debate around education as it is now? And I'm, I'm talking about primary education, the, the, of which you're a practitioner yourself. What are we missing? We hear a lot about emotion. We hear about uncertainty. We hear about fear. But I'm not getting any of that from you, at least in the open of this program. No, I mean, it hasn't, there, there was some fear, I think, in the beginning of what is it going to be like, and can the children do this, and can we as adults do this, and it be safe um, with, with the virus, and with mm -hmm. the, and what we have learned is school is very safe. Um, it is the one place that we can be sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing, so they're putting the personal protective equipment in place, and we're using it, and we're using it appropriately, and we're cleaning appropriately, and we're practicing good hygiene with the children appropriately. And so it has been safe. Um, we have had one positive case of a child and one positive case of an adult in nine weeks of learning in my building. And um, those have both come from outside of our school building. And there have not been any cases linked to those. And, and that, by the way, that's an open question for all of you. What do you think it's lost in translation? Anyone? No, I, I think um, I think we want schools to be safe, and we're certainly trying to make schools safe. And I think that that there are varying levels of safe. There is um, we are in a collective trauma. COVID nineteen is a collective trauma. We're all experiencing it. It has turned us all upside down in our professional and our personal lives. And our students feel that, and teachers get the secondhand stress of the student stress because they're still facing you know, children have no control over their lives. So they're, they're facing whatever traumas they were dealing with personally at home that, that we know and we don't know about. And now we've come into COVID where there are all these different schedules and schools are trying to be safe, but they're still, um, and I'm not being negative because what our teachers have done and what our students are doing and what our local administrators have done, like we're doing the impossible. We do the impossible every day. People are working two and three jobs. We're, we're reimagining it as it goes. So I'm not negating the joy and the positivity and the great things that can come from this, especially in shaking up the status quo. 
But we know that there are schools in the state of South Carolina that can't be social distanced because there's 25 to 28 in a class. So the desks are two feet apart. It's not safe. Um, we know that when a student goes out just in a local district, uh, 90 students went out in one school over the course of a few weeks because of COVID cases and quarantining. Parents are getting sick. Um, some of them are sending their students to school have been at home taking a test, but the student still comes to school when the parents don't know the result of the test. So I think we're doing, and it is not, I'm not judging any of these things because our personal situations and the need to get to work and the need to go to the job and the need to be face-to-face, -face, these are all very real things. Mm -hmm. We know education works best when, we, when we're having them in our safe environment for eight hours a day where they've got the food and they've got the resources and the guidance counselors. We know that education works best that way, but there is real fear and real risk about how we're approaching going back to school, which is why we're on all these crazy schedules, the hybrid, the virtual, the face-to-face the -face four day model versus the face-to-face -face five day model, because it is different in every community. And there, it, there are issues that we, you know, as always facing head on and trying to figure out, but I do think there's risk and I do think there's still a lot of fear and uncertainty surrounding how school looks. So Keisha, as a principal, as Sarah just talked about this, this increased level of stress on the teacher and those in the classroom, how, how, do, how, do, you, how do you remediate that situation, which was hard before, and now it seems like it's two or three X what it was before. So how do you make sure that, that your team is not just safe, but they're not saying, you know, Principal Clemens, I'm not going to be able to teach anymore. How do you keep them? Well, you know, I think that, you know, just piggybacking off of the, the fear, we know that there's fears, but part of leading change is, you know, helping to manage the emotions around that, keeping a pulse check on your kids and on your teachers, staying connected with mm -hmm. your families. Um, I think that connection and that continue to strengthen our relationships help to alleviate some of that stress, um, but also making sure that we're just providing our students and our staff what they need in the time that they need it, whether that is academically, social emotionally, some of the things that um, Sarah sh shared, you know, providing the needs, whether that's professional development needs for teachers, all of those things I think we've done to help really alleviate that stress that they're getting from their students and families, but also just navigating school to their own personal lives. So I think those connections, the relationships, and making sure that we are providing resources and things that teachers and students need help reduce mm -hmm. um, the level of stress. But there's still stress that we are um, having to work through and still thinking about how we can do that better. You, you know, Jessica, I know you have, and I'm not asking you this question, but I want, I want to cite, you have educators and students in school, you're 100% in. Maureen, I want to ask you a question about that. As Keisha just talked about and Sarah just talked about safety, mental health to some degree. Um, Maureen, mental health, what do you hear from your colleagues, from your cohort around mental health and around safety? By and large part, are they, are teachers concerned? Are they worried? Is it, is it one of those issues? How, what, what goes on? So mental health is definitely a big concern for everyone right now, both for our students, our teachers, and the caregivers. Um, and I've had the opportunity to work with our Southeast Region Teacher of the Year, Daniel Scott, and also some previous North Carolina Teachers of the Year to start a blog series where we're going to be addressing some of the mental health concerns for our teachers, for our students, and for our caregivers, because we recognize that that's something that we definitely need to address. 
Um, and I think one of the things that's been lost a little bit in the conversation is what teachers do for kids and how school is the safe place for a lot of kids. You know, so when we switched to remote learning, I could still deliver instruction. But I missed out on those conversations that I had with my kids in the morning when they would come into my classroom before school started. Or on the campus that I teach on, we have to walk across the campus to go to the lunchroom. And so as we were walking on that five minute walk to the lunchroom, kids would talk to me about what was going on and what they were struggling with and what they needed help with. And unfortunately, when you transition to remote learning, a lot of those organic conversations don't happen. And so as teachers, it's very, very important that we're making intentional efforts and finding ways to still connect with our kids to check in on their emotion and to check in on how they're doing with their mental health. Because for many students, they will talk to a teacher and let them know what's going on. And then we can put them in contact with the counselor or with the social worker or with the, an administrator who's able to help them navigate that challenge. And so we need to intentionally be doing that now, especially for our students that are in the blended and remote learning environments. Principal, um, principal I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Maureen. Principal Patterson, you're 100% in. Students, mm -hmm. right? And I am not overstating that. Was, and, I, and I don't mean to say it this way, but was, was, was personal safety, personal health, was that not really a priority or does it, oh, does it manifest yes. that it's not an issue? Um, that, that's absolutely been a, a priority and a concern. Um, and we did give our families options for a virtual academy. So our district has a virtual academy. So I had about 10% um, of my population go virtual, but district-wide, we probably had 20% of our families choose to go virtual, which um, then you know, took some of our teachers that were the ones that had higher levels of concern with the virus, gave them the option to also be virtual teachers. And so that, that what allowed us to address some of those concerns as well in personal safety. Um, I will say that that's been probably our biggest issue. We know that children, especially younger children, are safer from the virus and the adults are our concern with, um, with catching the virus or um, you know, health concerns there. And so we've had to navigate that very carefully. And um, we've worked in some remote learning weeks, especially for the older um, students on our district. So high school has two weeks of remote learning and then two weeks of in-person. Um, and then our elementary ages have had only one week in the nine weeks of remote learning. What we have found is again, that our elementary is a little bit safer um, and, our, and our staff has been safe. And so um, we've been very fortunate in that. And we didn't know in the beginning, it was a risk that we were taking. But um, what my staff, my personal staff has found is that remote learning is tougher on them than actually being here in person. Mm -hmm. More stress and their mental health was a bigger issue because of the things that Maureen talked about, but also just because as teachers and as educators, we carry the burden of these children's success on our shoulders every mm -hmm. day. And so for us, we're worried about these children learning to read. And we know that social emotional is what's important right now. And I can tell them that and tell them that, but they're like, no, I've got to get them to read. They, this is a huge piece of their foundation and of their life. And so they want them here so that they can do their job. And I guess that's the beautiful thing about educators. We take risks for and risk our own lives for these children. And I've been able to address individuals that um, as a district, we, we care um, about our, our folks and we take care of them. And so if there's an individual that you know, has health concerns or um, is worried about taking those risks, then we've, we have been able to work with them and have those conversations. Do, do, do any of you in other districts or other schools have a different take on that? Anyone? 
I think teachers always step up and step out and take risk, um, both instructionally and then, of course, now with our own health. Um, but it is, and, and it's true that we would rather be together and it, it, there's no substitute for teaching in person. But I think that as long as our community understands what, what teachers go through, I just talked to a teacher two days ago who's on quarantine because she, um, her family member has it. So she's on quarantine and she's, she's scared. And another student, another teacher last night when we were at a district forum, got a phone call that her student tested positive. And so there are now, and then they were getting numbers of how many students were now going to be quarantined and, and they have exposure to that. And where, and, and I just think that we have to acknowledge as teachers that we're doing this really beautiful thing for our students and for our families. And we were stepping up to keep the education of our communities and the function of our communities surviving. We're doing it hybridly, remotely, virtually. We're building those communities. Trauma-informed instruction says, mm -hmm. um, Camille Farrington, 2012, published that um, I belong to this community is the first step, like feeling that you belong. And we're doing that online. We're doing that all different places. But the, the physical fear of buildings is a very real thing, and it is affecting real teachers. And, and again, it just depends on the community. Um, and, it, and it's nobody's fault. The schools are doing everything they can to make it safe. So I'm not negating that. It's just that it's, I think the teachers that I talk to, when they talk about the risk they're taking, because it is, they just want people to know that they're doing it out of love and professionalism mm -hmm. and about and out of concern for the children because school is safer for them. But it is, it is and always will be until we can get a vaccine, a risk. Keisha, we've been talking by and large about the general population, but what happens to the kids with learning differences what, what, that already had to come to the school system under normal circumstances to find an accommodation, a 504 or something of the like? What happens to those kids? How do you make sure that the families and the children get what they need? Um, that's a great question because I think, you know, typically we um, have to think about innovative ways to support them. And now with being remote with a lot of times, uh, right now our students are hybrid. So we have some face-to-face -face and some um, remote, but I think really working with our families and making sure that we are supporting them too as well, because we can't do this alone. You know, it, it takes all of us to do this work. So we are trying to think of innovative ways to stay connected, to provide the academic supports, the social, the emotional um, supports to students when they're specifically when they're remote because they're not with us, mm -hmm. um, but also supporting families and being able to do that as well. And I just wanted to touch on one other thing that I think both Ms. Patterson and um, Ms. Sarah uh, mentioned too about safety is um, that, you know, students are typically safer at school. We put in all of these protocols to um, make sure that they're safe, but still focusing on learning, but safety is the most important thing that we do. Um, however, I think one of the things that we are um, challenged with is not just safety of COVID, um, but we've experienced some pretty horrific events in our society through the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And, and, and so there are also some safety and some fears as we think about our students and our families of color coming back to school, knowing that when they come to school that they're going to be safe because what we know is our, uh, our schools are just a microcosm of what's happening in our society. And as they walk into our buildings, we have to make sure that our students know that they're loved and they'll be taken care of and there's adults in their in their life that are going to make sure that they're safe. So I think that's one thing we have to continue to consider as well. 
Maureen, we not to put you on the spot, but how does how does safety how do, how does safety wash over you? So our school system is in a different situation because we are still 100% remote. So we do not have any students currently in classrooms. And that's because Cumberland County is a very large county. Um, and we also have a, a, a very unique population because of Fort Bragg, which is a very large military installation. So there are a lot of people that are coming through Fort Bragg, um, coming from all over the world. And so that makes us a very in a very unique situation. Um, but like Keisha said, I think that this is an opportunity for us to redefine education. This has highlighted that the trauma-informed instruction is incredibly important for us to include in our teaching practice. And it's also shown us that we really need to have cultural responsive practices for all teachers and that teachers need to be trained on how to do that and so that they are able to effectively deliver that instruction and include that and embed that in everything that they do in their classrooms. Um, you know, so I, I don't ever want to see things as problems. I always want to see things as opportunities for solution. And I see this as an opportunity for us to so have some solutions to really, really change education for the better. Um, we've known that inequities exist in our public school system forever. But now we, they've really been highlighted and magnified because of COVID-19. So we saw kids that did not have Wi-Fi access. We saw kids that did not have the ability to get healthy meals. We saw all kinds of issues that were cropping up that have existed in our public school systems for years, but were never addressed. And now we've been given the opportunity to address those. And I think that this is a chance for us to redefine education. 2020 can be a pivotal year in our public school systems. And we have a chance to fix a lot of problems. And if we give up this opportunity to fix those problems, mm -hmm. I feel like that we've given up a huge chance to really make education better and more equitable for all of our students. Ms. Stover, that's going to be the last word. And this is going to sound patronizing, and it absolutely is not. I am, I am honored and thrilled that you all joined me as North Carolina, South Carolina Teachers of the Year, principal, uh, uh, Principals of the Year as well. Ladies, thank you for your efforts. Thank you for putting yourself out there. And thank you for everything you do. Um, until next week, I'm Chris William. Thank you for watching this program. Stay safe. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Bearings, Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.